Hello, everybody. Welcome to the session on the history of the international Marxist tendency. The, inter the international Marxist tendency traces its roots all the way through the first, second, third, and fourth internationals. In the post-war period, there was a general retreat by the forces of genuine Marxism, and the left was dominated by the distortions of Stalinism and reformism. While other groups were preparing for a third world war or denying the existence of the working class, our tendency put up a firm defense of the theories of, and traditions of Marxism, which at every turn were proved to be correct. By building on the firm basis of theory, our organization is today emerging as the strongest revolutionary force amongst workers and youth worldwide. So let me introduce you Fred Weston, is a leading activist of the INT, and he will introduce, introduce this discussion. Just to point, I have two books to advertise. Helping, uh, the, the first one is from Ted Grant, uh, History of British Trotskyism. And the second one, is, second one is from Alan Woods on Ted Grant, The Permanent Revolutionary. So uh, Fred uh, is doing the lead-off for 90 minutes, until the break at uh, 5.35 p.m. British summer time. And then and at 7.30 7 p.m. BST, we'll have a discussion. And, um, at 8.30 until 9, we'll have the sum up uh, from uh, Fred Weston. So I, uh, wait a minute, Fred, and activate your microphone. Okay, I can go, yeah, Uber. Let's go, Fred. Okay, um, <clears throat> well... Um, I was asked to provide comrades with my notes for the lead-off to help the translators, but uh, I'm too old for that. I have these kind of notes, as you can see, fully, fully digitalized, and um, furthermore, far too much for 90 minutes. So I think I might do what Ted Grant used to do, which was to read the first page of his notes, and then not look at them for the rest of the talk. But we'll see, we'll see. Um, now, Ted Grant has a major role, obviously, in this history, because the history of the INT is uh, firmly connected with the ideas and methods that Ted kept alive. Of course, we are Trotskyists, and we uh, go back to the left opposition of the 1930s. Those uh, communist fighters who fought against the bureaucratic degeneration of the Soviet Union. And we build on their tradition. It was a difficult period uh, in which to defend the genuine ideas of Marxism. And it's an unfortunate fact that many, uh, many elements on the left who claim uh, the mantle of Trotsky, the mantle of Lenin, in reality have a sectarian approach. And they do a disservice to the movement. And you see, I remember with Ted, it was what distinguished him, I think, was the ability to dialogue with ordinary working class people, while at the same time not losing the revolutionary perspective. It, it, it's an ability to work in the wider labor movement with a language that workers can understand, at the same time without losing the revolutionary program, analysis and perspective. One of the dangers facing the revolutionary movement is adaptation to the reformist milieu. You see, 
in periods of relative stability, in periods of economic upswing, um, most all workers want to get on with their lives and they're not ready to listen to the revolutionaries. What will push the masses to revolutionary ideas are not the Marxists, but it's the crisis of the capitalist system as it unfolds. So revolutionaries can work for long periods, seemingly against the stream. And there can be a temptation to adapt to a given level of consciousness at a given moment. And this can push the revolutionaries towards reformist adaptation. At the same time, it can also lead to the development of a sectarian approach, because this comes from frustration and impatience with the working class. And very often we see both the opportunist tendencies and the ultra-left tendencies in the same people or in the same organizations. Now, what distinguished, I think, Ted was this ability to maintain a balanced position. And this, I think, is what characterized the organizations that Ted helped to build. First of all, the Workers' International League in 1938, the RCP, the Revolutionary Communist Party, later on during the Second World War, the militant before it degenerated, and subsequently the IMT. Now, this, uh, what I referred to earlier on, this, this adaptation to opportunism and this tendency towards sectarianism are things that the Marxists are in a constant battle against. It was present in 1938, in 1945, in the 60s, in the 70s. As the militant uh, towards the, the end uh, degenerated, its leadership went into an ultra-left direction, but there were also elements that went in an opportunist direction and buried themselves in, in the Labour Party and the trade unions in, in, in a bureaucratic manner. And we ourselves have had to constantly be alert to these tendencies. And on occasion, we've had to separate from individuals or groups who had gone too far in either ultra-leftism or opportunism. Now, sometimes I get asked the question, what guarantees do we have that this, all this won't happen again? I'll say it again, and I'm not, it's not my invention. I'm only quoting somebody else. If you want a guarantee, buy a washing machine because they come with a guarantee. But even they have a guarantee which has a limit. Now, the only thing that comes anywhere close to a guarantee is political education, attention to theory, and the building of Marxist cadres, i.e. active members of the organization who have a good grounding in Marxist theory and who can think for themselves. Another thing which we mustn't forget, and Ted always used to insist on this, is that revolutionaries must have a sense of proportion, and we must maintain that. We mustn't get carried away. Once you think you're much stronger and much more powerful and much more important than you really are, you're on the road to ruin. Another thing which revolutionaries need is a sense of humor, which is connected to a sense of proportion. I think I have a sense of humor, so at least I have one of the elements. Um, Now, to move on, um, why are we discussing the history of the IMT? Well, it's because capitalism is a global system. The working class struggle is a global struggle. And socialism can only succeed as a global system. The Russian Revolution 
the marvelous uh, revolutionary events of October 1917, unfortunately, were not uh, was not followed by revolutions of successful revolutions in other countries. And therefore, it degenerated into the monstrous Stalinist regime that we saw. And that was because of its isolation to one country and a very backward one at that. Now, Stalinists always talk of socialism in one country. They talk about national roads to socialism. I remember in the 70s in Britain, the British road to socialism. Or in Italy, it was the Italian road to socialism. The question has to be asked, therefore, why did Lenin give so much importance to the building of the Communist International? 15 minutes gone. Why bother if it's possible to build socialism in one country? The reason Lenin gave such importance is because Lenin understood that either the revolution spread to other countries or um, it faced the risk of being overthrown or degenerating. Capitalism is an international system and never like today has it become evident that the problems facing humanity can only be solved on a global scale. The pandemic, climate change, they do not recognize national borders. Neither does the economic crisis. We have immense productive forces that have been created. We have the development of science and technique to unprecedented levels. Recently, very recently, both India and the United Arab Emirates sent uh, probes on their way to Mars. And yet millions, billions of people face poverty and hunger. For that, we need, uh, what we need is to remove the system. The working class is the class that will do that. But the whole of history shows the working class also needs leadership up to the task. In each country, we must build initially the nucleus of a Marxist organization and then work to transform that later on, on the basis of events, into a major force. That is what the IMT stands for. Now, the question is, where do we come from? What is our history? The time I have, I can't go into the details of every event, every moment, but I will attempt to touch on the main points. Hubert mentioned two books. Those books I recommend to everybody. They should read them if they haven't read them, if they want a more detailed account of what I'm going to talk about. And as Hubert said, we stand on the tradition of the first, second, third international, the first four Congress of the Communist International, the left opposition of Trotsky. 20 minutes gone. And the founding Congress of the fourth international in 1938. Now, Ted Grant plays an important role in this. In 1928, he joined the Trotskyist movement when he was a 15-year-old boy. He bought the paper of the American Trotskyists in a bookshop in South Africa. That's how he, got, he, he, he began to get involved. Um, he subsequently moved to Britain in 1934 with a few other comrades from South Africa. And I'm fast forwarding, I can't go into the details. In 1938, together with uh, Ralph Lee, he and a few other, and a small group of comrades set up what became known as the Workers' International League. I want to give a bit of a, a taste of the environment that Ted found when he came to Britain. Um, there were small Trotskyist groups in Britain in the 1930s. 
And it's honest to, it would be honest to say that they suffered from the disease of sectarianism. For instance, Trotsky's advice initially was that they should set up a tendency within the independent Labour Party. Uh, they divided over that. Some agreed, some didn't. When it was clear that, that the period, the, the, the fruitful period of work in the ILP was coming to an end, and Trotsky advised them to move their forces to the Labour Party, again, there were divisions within the small group of Trotsky. Because as usual, you have sectarians who first they refuse to go in. When they do go in, they adapt in an, an opportunist manner and, get, and, and don't, um, um, don't accept the advice of Trotsky. And again, the, the, some of them did accept Trotsky's advice and went into the Labour Party. But from my reading of, those, of that period, it's not enough to judge whether a group is working correctly simply by seeing whether they are in or outside the Labour Party. Because you can adapt in an opportunist manner uh, when you're working in the reformist milieu. So what we had when Ted arrived was different. Uh, by 1938, you had several small Trotskyist groups with different positions. Some were outside the Labour Party, some were inside. I would say they all suffer from the small circle mentality, which we've had a separate discussion on here at this school. Ted's group started off as basically an, an expulsion, actually, from one of these groups um, in Paddington in London. And they decided to launch the Workers' International League as a consequence, which was, which was orientated. It was working in the Labour Party. But there was another group also working in the Labour Party, Trotsky's group, But I would argue there was a difference between the two groups. Ted's group was openly defending the ideas of Marxism. No hint of opportunism in the way they presented their ideas. But it wasn't just that. It was also an outgoing group. They were selling papers in London on you know, the metro stations. They were going to the factories and selling papers. They were genuinely going out into the working class to build. And they were building, whereas the others were stagnating. Now, what happened in 1938 is the following. Preparations, preparations were being made to organize the founding Congress of the Fourth International. James Cannon, a leader of the American section of the Fourth International, came to Britain. His aim was to fuse all the Trotskyist groups into one organization and then go to the Congress in France, which was to found the, the, the Fourth International with a successful fusion behind his, you know, in his pocket. Little problem. There was no principled unity on how to work amongst these groups. The policy of the Fourth International for Britain was actually being carried out by the will. They were carrying out the advice of Trotsky. Curiously enough, the will did not become the official section of the Fourth International in 1938. So, 30 minutes gone. Why is that? Well, when Cannon met with the will, and, and curiously, the only group that Cannon not only spoke to the leaders, but spoke to the whole membership in a meeting, was the will. The will comrades accepted that they would participate in the conference, which, were, which was aimed at fusing the groups together. But they explained the conditions for a fusion do not exist. And if you look at the final result of the fusion congress, you see why. They formed an organization which had, which had some of its members doing independent work, some of them doing Labour Party work. They had not agreed on how to work. They simply formally accepted to declare themselves members of the same organization. Ted's group, around Ralph Lee, of the will, 
refused to participate in what they saw as a farce. Cannon never forgave the will comrades for that. How could they not carry out the dictates of Cannon? That shows you the method of Cannon. Instead of basing himself on the politics, on a common policy, it was just force the groups together. It just You cannot do that. It will not work. Um, he went so far. He, he even hid from the delegates present at the founding Congress of the Fourth International that the will had applied first to be recognized as the official section because they were carrying out the policy of the international. He hid that from the, from the delegates. They said, failing that, if the conference did not recognize that, they requested to be recognized as a sympathizing group. As you can see in the figure of Canon, there was a disease present right from the very early days of the formation of the Fourth International. Unfortunately, there is in the writings of Leon Trotsky, uh, the volume 1938-39, a text, which is a, a basically it's a, a, an interview, a dialogue between C.L.R. James and Trotsky. And it's interesting what C.L.R. James tells Trotsky. He's describing to Trotsky the various groups that exist in Britain. And this is what he says. There is also another group, Lee's group in the Labour Party. Lee was then the, the, the leading figure in, in the will. And he says, which refused to have anything to do with fusion, which is a lie, by the way, because, because they said they were prepared to go through the process of discussion. But then he quotes correctly saying, um, he said, saying that they qu- quoting Lee, the Lee group, saying it, that they said it was bound to fail. Little detail, the next sentence, the Lee group, the Lee group is very active. And it's interesting in the same dialogue with C.L.R. James, what Trotsky has to say about the Trotskyists in Britain. This is Trotsky's judgment of those that entered the ILP. He says, not all our comrades entered the ILP. And those that did, and they developed an opportunistic policy so far as I could observe. And that is why their experience in the ILP was not so good. But then if you go to a note to this, um, to this text in the writings of Trotsky, and of course the note is, is uh, produced by Pathfinder, which was controlled by the American SWP under Canon. This is their explanation. The Lee Group came into existence in 1938 as a result of purely personal grievances and had no discernible political program. That's the way they present that event. The truth is, the will was actually the healthiest of all these groups. So far did the publishers of Pathfinder Press go in this question that they hid one letter from Trotsky to Ted's group. I won't go into the details because there is a long explanation by Alan Woods on this question. But it was a letter that Trotsky wrote after the will had published uh, Trotsky's uh, Lessons of Spain. In another interview, uh, Trotsky praises, uh, and it can only be the will that he's referring to, he praises them for having acquired a small printing press, because they were the only group that did that. 40 minutes gone. Read Alan's text to, 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 to find the details of how we discovered this letter and how we finally got it recently, which was a, a big, a very important um, uh, development for us because it showed that what Ted had said all those years was true. The letter did exist and it was finally produced. Now, within a few weeks, the, the new group that they'd formed split apart as the will had predicted. And then... 
precisely because the will was the healthiest of these groups. If we look at what happened during the Second World War, the will begins to grow significantly. I have lots of uh, detailed information here, which I can't quote because of time. The, the, the significant workers that they won over, trade union leaders, uh, shop stewards, um, factory leaders, they won them um, to the will. In 1941, they changed their orientation. The Labour Party was empty at that stage. It was in a national coalition. The war was on. The, 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 the Communists of the Will actively intervened in all the major strikes. Um, and you have to understand, the Labour Party was in a coalition with the Conservatives and the Liberals. The official Communist Party, the Stalinist Communist Party, their position was to support the war effort and... Uh, they, they were against uh, strike action. Um, and the, um, uh, the situation was one where the, the will was making very important gains, especially on the industrial front amongst the, the workers. The Stalinists, because of this growing influence of the RCP, because the RCP was then formed in 1940. Sorry, I'm, I'm jumping ahead here. I'll explain that. In, in 19, by 1944, the will was by far the strongest of all the Trotskyist groups. And the Fourth International had to recognize that. And um, that's how there was a fusion with the best of the others, you could say. Um, and it, that was the basis for the creation of the, of the new organization, basically under the leadership of the will, which was, became known as the Revolutionary Communist Party. Now, there is a, a, an interesting little document that you can actually find on the Marxist, Marxist Internet Archive. It's called Clear Out Hitler's Agents. It's a, it was a pamphlet, a leaflet produced by the official Communist Party attacking the RCP and the will as agents of Hitler because they supported strikes. The reply of the will... in in 1942 to this slander, which you can also find on the Marxist Internet Archive, it's called Factory Workers, Be On Your Guard, Clear Out the Bosses Agents. And as I said, Ted Grant always had a sense of humor. They published a leaflet, they, they published a leaflet in which they offered a £10 reward to any worker who could find one page in this Stalinist pamphlet with, which had less than three lies in it. The workers had a good laugh, but nobody claimed the £10. Now, um, towards the end of the war, the comrades were, they were involved in the apprentices strikes in the northeast of England. They had a strong base. They even had soldiers uh, in the 8th Army spreading the ideas of Trotskyism to the, to the soldiers, to the British soldiers. As part of the RCP involvement in the strikes, Several of leading figures of the RCP were arrested, kept in prison, um, um, and put on, uh, put on trial. But in the army, in, 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 in Egypt, the, the British army, you had what was called the Cairo Soldiers' Parliament. It was a kind of, I suppose, an organization of debate amongst the soldiers where they discussed, and they even published bulletins among the soldiers. 15 minutes gone. And among the soldiers, the slogan was raised, we are fighting, that is the war, as they saw it, an anti-fascist war, as they saw it, we're fighting for the right to strike. That had an effect. And in the end, they had to let them out on bail. And eventually, um, they had to drop the case. 
Now, the perspectives of the Fourth International and the perspectives of Trotsky before he died were that the Second World that the Second World War would end with a wave of revolution like the First World War. In a certain sense, that was true. The Greek Civil War, the partisan movement in Italy, the partisans in France, the colonial revolution was given a massive impetus, India, China. But it's true to say that things did not work out as they had predicted, particularly in the advanced capitalist countries. The, uh, the strengthening of the Soviet Union under Stalin, the spread of deformed worker states from the Soviet Union to Eastern Europe, enormously strengthened the authority of Stalinism in that particular period. And the, the, the defeat of the movement in several countries created the conditions for economic revival in the capitalist uh, countries, in the advanced capitalist countries. The perspectives that the Trotskyists had worked out had to be reappraised. And in spite of the successful work done during the war, the changed conditions immediately after the war had an impact on the RCP. The leadership of the RCP around TED uh, attempted to reappraise, to, to draw a balance sheet of the situation. TED, in 1946, in a document called Economic Perspectives, uh, which was a, a, an amend, a proposed line of amendment to the International Conference of the Fourth International. He criticized those who were talking about the spontaneous collapse of capitalism. He said this, to quote, he said, with the weakness of the parties of the Fourth International, which remain small sects at this stage, the capitalists have been enabled to find a way out of the collapse and decline of economy. This has prepared the way in Western Europe for a steady and fairly rapid recovery. And he added, the fourth international will only discredit itself if it refuses to recognize the inevitable recovery. And it will disorientate its own cadres as well as the broad masses by predicting a permanent slump and slow rhythm of recovery in Western Europe when events are taking a different shape. Um, of course, Ted had a balanced position. After explaining that a recovery was taking place, he explained, however, a new recovery, this is what he says, a new recovery can only prepare the way for an even greater slump, an, even, an economic crisis than in the past. Compare what the leaders of the RCP were saying with what the leaders of the Fourth International were saying. And you tell me who had the more balanced position and who, whose ideas have been confirmed by history. And I tr uh, um, Ted did not have a crystal ball. He couldn't see the, 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 how, how long and how big the boom was going to be. But he had eyes to see, and he could see what was in front of his eyes, that there was an economic recovery taking place in that particular moment. And it was necessary to reorientate the forces of the Fourth International. But the leaders of the Fourth International refused to listen, not just on the question of economic perspective. Their perspective, their perspective was that the Soviet Union was about to collapse. Read what Ted and the, and the leaders of the RCP were saying. They were explaining that the opposite was the case. Read what they were saying about China. Ted, even before Mao came to power, because there, there was speculation among some Trotskyists that Mao would not come to power, he would betray. I can't go into the details here. You read the texts. You read, for instance, Reply to David James, which is available on the Marxist Internet Archive. 
Ted explained that Mao would come to power with an independent base, and therefore, and, it, and what would come to power would be a bureaucratic caste similar to the Soviet Union. Now, make, let's be clear. We welcomed the Chinese Revolution as the second most important event in history after the Russian Revolution itself, but that it would have a bureaucratic deformation from the day one. 60 minutes. And on this basis, Ted predicted that the Chinese bureaucracy would come into conflict with the Soviet bureaucracy. History proved Ted to be correct within about 10 or 15 years. But what is most incredible about the leaders, of, the so-called leaders of the Fourth International at the time was their refusal to recognize that the Second World War had even ended. I will read Cannon from November 1945. This is what Cannon said. Trotsky predicted that the fate of the Soviet Union would be decided in the war. That remains our firm conviction. Only, and listen to this, only make sure your ears are nice and clean and you can hear this because you might not believe it. This is Cannon. Only... We disagree with some people who carelessly think the war is over. The war has only passed through one stage and is now in the process of regroupment and reorganization for the second. The war is not over. And the revolution which we said would issue from the war in Europe is not taken off the agenda. I will stop the quote there because I, th I think it's enough. Can you imagine going to the working class at the end of the Second World War. And you tell them, the war is not over, there is no economic recovery, and revolution is around the corner, basically. They had completely lost their bearings. When it became obvious that the war was over, then they began to predict the Third World War. I will quote Pierre Frank from December 1951, Second World War. This was at the Third Congress of the Fourth International. It says, the Third World Congress of the Trotskyists has clearly drawn the positions of our movement in the coming war. This is, this is Pierre Frank. This is all available if you, if you look it up. Um, with this total lack of understanding of the real world they were in, they destroyed the Fourth International. In Britain, they maneuvered. They found people to support their position. An individual called Jerry Healy, who was ready to support them, who then spent the next several decades predicting the Third World War. And they expelled Ted Grant in a situation where the RCP was basically in a state of collapse. Can you imagine? The objective conditions were difficult. And then all these maneuvers from the top had a demoralizing effect on the ranks of the RCP. In spite of all this, in 1950, Ted wrote an open letter to what had then become the official section of the Fourth International. The with Ted was now outside of that organization. And he's appealing them to reappraise. This is what he said, analyzing the, the situation. He says this, this poses new theoretical problems to be worked out by the Marxist movement under conditions of isolation and paucity of forces, that's of, of small forces, um, new historic, historical factors could not but result in a theoretical crisis of the movement, posing the problem of its very existence and survival. Now, how many times have we quoted Lenin, who said that there's no such thing as the final crisis of capitalism? I have here the bulletin on the Third World Congress of the Fourth International of 1951. 70 minutes. Uh, obviously, it's a mirror image 
as you can see. But what, it's, what it says is the final crisis of world capitalism. Now, all the subsequent groups that emerged from the splits and subsplits and splinters and fragmentations of the Trotskyist movement all have, unfortunately, a certain amount of, D- of this DNA. Remember, 1938, Ted was kept out of the fourth by Cannon. In 1950, they expelled Ted and his group. In the 50s, I can't go into the details here, because of the splits in the fourth international, the fourth ended up with no section in Britain. Uh, The people that manoeuvred against Ted then came into conflict with the fourth international. And in the mid 50s, the question was posed as whether Ted's group should go back into the fourth international. They debated that question. I remember speaking to some of the older comrades who told me that, they were, that some of them were not too keen, but it was a very small group, I don't know, 30 to 50 for membership in the 1950s, isolated in Britain in very difficult conditions. They, ended, they decided we'll go back in. They didn't agree with the policy and the perspectives of these people, but they were hoping that to break out of their isolation, they were hoping there would be some healthy elements somewhere in the fourth. But what's interesting here is this. In 1945-48, Ted was fighting the ultra-left perspectives of the leaders of the Fourth International. But by the time we get to the end of the 50s, he's fighting, he's fighting, their, opportun- he's fighting their opportunism. They had become, because the, the Third World War hadn't taken place, the economy hadn't collapsed, the Soviet Union had not collapsed, reality banged them so hard on the head that they swung 180 degrees the other way. And they started to see deficit financing and all kinds of ideas that explained that capitalism was facing a long-term boom and uh, crisis were off the agenda. They even played with the ideas of of bourgeoisification of of the working class, some of them, some of them. One of the reasons why Ted wrote, Will There Be a Slump? in 1960, was in polemic against the international leadership and against the reformists, of course, who thought that capitalism has now solved all its problems. In 1958-60, more or less, there was a, a, an opposition group developed in, the, in, 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 the, uh, in Ted's group. They had this idea that we shouldn't have a paper, an independent paper, and that they should form a paper with other lefts. They were, they were adapting opportunistically. What's interesting is what, where these people ended up. They ended up as becoming the future Mandalites, utterly opportunist. Within 10 years, they were utterly sectarian and ultra-left. As you can see, Ted throughout the whole of his history, was fighting both opportunism and ultra-leftism in the movement. And remember, there were other Trotskyist groups working in the Labour Party at that time. But the question is not, it's not whether you're in or out, it's how you work. In the early 60s, the Ted's group was coming to the conclusion that we need a clear banner. That's what led to the uh, launching of the militant paper in 1964. But they also had to come to terms with the uh, with, with, the fourth, with the so-called Fourth International. In this pamphlet, we have a document which was presented to the Congress of the so-called Fourth International, 1965. The International refused to circulate the document. Ted Grant said the Second International had become a post office. He said, you guys are not good even at being post, um, uh, postal delivery workers. They basically expelled Ted for the third time. This is an example of the early militant. This is from, eight, from June 1968. In 1970, Ted wrote a document called Program of the International. 
80 minutes. Which I advise all comrades who haven't read it to read, to read it. It's available online because it draws a balance sheet of all these years I've been talking about. And it refers to the future international. In fact, there's a subtitle, How Will the International Be Organized? Remember, this was a small group isolated in one country, but they had something the others didn't have, ideas and the Marxist method and a balanced approach. They worked, but by 1970, the militant as a tendency gained a majority in the youth of the Labour Party and then began to break out of the national isolation, making contacts with the left young socialists in Sweden, in Ireland, in Belgium, in Germany. I remember in, in 1974, which was a key moment for capitalism as well, the first real, you could say, world recession since the Second World War. I remember the events of the 1970s, starting with May 68, the hot autumn in Italy, 1969, the anti-war movement internationally against the Vietnam War, the events in South America with revolution and counter-revolution in countries like Chile and Argentina, the growing revolutionary movement of the Spanish workers after decades of uh, Franco dictatorship, the collapse of the junta in Greece, the Portuguese revolution, the, the defeat of Portuguese imperialism in Angola and Mozambique. There was a worldwide movement of the workers and the youth. And those are the conditions in which finally we established a new international which gave itself the name then of the Committee for a Workers' International. I remember at the time we were gathering our forces. We gave key importance to the events of Spain. We concentrated all our energy on finding contact with the youth and the workers in the underground in Spain. That's when we decided to send Alan Woods to Spain under the Franco dictatorship. And, we, and we, starting with a small nucleus, we built up quite a, a powerful tendency very quickly in a very short amount of time. We made contact with um, left groups in Greece just after the collapse of the junta, and we won over a, gr uh, a group in Greece. I can't go into the details, but it was, the international was growing. We began the work in Italy. We began the work in North America, in South America. We won a group of South Africans. This is the first issue of their paper, and this... And this is a, a, one of their perspectives documents which they were ex for which they were expelled from the ANC. Um, we were growing, becoming a strong force, particularly in Britain, where we were becoming a household name. Now, I know that Rob is going to go into more details on this part of our history. Three minutes left. So I'm not going to go into too many details, but we started getting councillors, MPs. Our MPs were different from all the others. They took the wage of a worker and they gave the rest back to different causes of the labor movement. So popular were our MPs. I have a, a, a very a, a personal little anecdote. I grew up in Coventry in the, in the Midlands in England. My mother was working in a restaurant which was going to close and they were going to sack the workers. Not, my mother, not particularly political, but she said once, if, if, you know, the, if the MP, if that MP, uh, Nellist, If he was the manager, he wouldn't treat us like this, would he? My cousin's husband, another not very political, he said, talking about David, he says, he's the, he's the working man's MP. We had a strong base in Liverpool. We intervened massively in the miners' strike. And we, led, and, and we led the poll tax movement of millions of people. Now, unfortunately, that organization degenerated. 
And I won't go into the details, Rob can explain more. But in 1991, we we began to separate our ways. The myth is that we separated over the Labour Party. That's only very, very partially true. The reality was the whole setup, the whole, the, the whole regime within the militant had degenerated. We were forced to break with this and we launched in 1992 what is now known as the International Marxist Tendency. And it wasn't easy and we, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a clear run. Uh, we went through a lot of clarification and we even and we had to separate further with elements which I believe had some had gone in an ultra left direction, others had adapted to the reformist milieu. The IMT is not prepared to make concessions on questions of principle. Marxist theory is the key. We regrouped and we began to rebuild. And in the last twenty or so years, from nothing, we have built strong organizations in Canada and the United States. We encountered the comrades in Brazil, the leaders of the Occupy Factories movement at the height of the Venezuelan revolution and discovered we had a lot in common and we united. And we built in several other countries, in Nigeria and South Africa, Indonesia, Pakistan, most recently in Russia. Um, we have built what we believe is the nucleus of a future powerful Marxist international based on the traditions of the first, second, third, and fourth international, on the ideas developed by Ted Grant, on the ideas that we further developed since then. Now, a lot more, I don't want to encroach on the other talk you're going to get tomorrow, which is on building the organization. I will leave that to another comrade. But I've tried to outline the basic points of our history. And as you see, it's not an organizational question. At every turn, it's been a political question. Understanding the processes, understanding the post-war period, understanding the perspectives for the Stalinist country, understanding the colonial revolution, and maintaining a firm and clear perspective that it's the working class which will change society. I'll have to leave it there because I've gone over my time. I might come back to a few points maybe in the summing up, but I will leave it there for now, comrades. Thank you very much, Fred. Just before we break... Just before the break, I have a very important announcement. On, on the 14th of July, Comrade Amit from the Pakistani section of the IMT was abducted from his home by the Rangers, a paramilitary group in Pakistan. In many cases, victims of the Rangers have been tortured and many have lost their lives. We appeal to all those watching to hold protests against these crimes of the Pakistani state. You can write letters and emails to Pakistani embassies in different countries in a personal capacity or on behalf of your organization. A video and an article have been published on the Marxist.com website, and this can be posted on social media with the hashtags, hashtag release, I mean, hashtag stop, step, stop state abduction in Pakistan. Thank you uh, in advance, everybody. We reconvene in uh, at uh, 8, at uh, 7, 30 p.m. British summer time in 17 minutes. Okay, so we we begin now the discussion with uh, Comrade Paolo Grassi. It's up to you. We start now with uh, the contribution from Comrade Paolo from Italy. Buonasera, compagni. Voglio iniziare questo intervento. 
Good evening, comrades. I will start this contribution. Rispetto alla, a una considerazione, che la storia della nostra internazionale è la storia della difesa di un programma e delle idee del marxismo contro tutto e tutti. With uh, the idea that the history of our international is, is the history of a defense of our program and of our ideas against everyone and everything. Contro il settarismo, contro l'opportunismo, ma anche contro la potenza di fuoco di riformisti e stalinisti. Against uh, sectarianism, against uh, reformism and also against the big uh, power of uh, the stalinists. I principi citati da Fred sono fondamentali. And the principles that Fred uh, quoted are uh, of uh, fundamental importance. Fred ha detto che non esistono garanzie contro la degenerazione. Fred explained that there are no guarantees against the degeneration. Ma che quello che può aiutare sono la formazione politica, la formazione teorica e la costruzione dei quadri. But that only political, theoretical education and cadre building can help. Io volevo fare alcuni esempi di come questo sia stato fondamentale per la sezione italiana. And I would like to give a few examples of how these were of fundamental importance in the history of our Italian section. Tutti i compagni presenti in questa scuola hanno dovuto affrontare momenti difficili e nuotare controcorrente. All the comrades present in this school had to face difficult times and go against the stream. Per la sezione italiana questa è stata una costante per decenni. And this was a permanent trade, trade for our section for several decades. Ma i quadri si possono costruire anche controcorrente. But we can build cadres uh, also when uh, swimming against the stream. All'inizio degli anni 80, quando il nostro giornale si chiamava Falce Martello, at the beginning of the 80s when we had a, a paper named Falce Martello, the Hammer and Sickle, e nasce come giornale della gioventù comunista in un circolo del Partito Comunista eh, in una città di provincia, which was founded as a, a paper published by a branch of the communist youth in a small provincial town in Italy. Un pugno di giovani compagni vengono espulsi rapidamente dal Partito Comunista. Uh, the, a handful of young comrades are very quickly expelled by the Communist Party for that. Una cosa oggi difficile da capire per lo sproporzione dei rapporti di forza che c'era tra un apparato mastodontico e un gruppo giovane di compagni. Uh, maybe it's difficult to understand it now because uh, uh, to understand that uh, enormous disproportion between the force of this gigantic apparatus and this small nucleo, uh, nucleo of comrades. Ma le, ma le burocrazie riformiste e staliniste si parlavano a livello internazionale e tutti sapevano quello che era il militant e il lavoro che aveva fatto Ted Grant in Gran Bretagna. But the fact is that the reformist bureaucracies were in touch with each other at a, an international level, so everyone in the bureaucracy knew what Ted Grant had built in Great Britain in the previous years. E volevano eliminarci subito perché ci temevano. And they wanted to get rid of us uh, since from the start because they feared us. Nonostante ciò, nonostante l'espulsione, continuiamo ad orientarci al Partito Comunista. Despite all the, those expulsions, we pushed an orientation towards the Communist Party. Ovviamente perché il Partito Comunista era il partito prevalente della classe lavoratrice. Which at that time was a main force in the working class in Italy. Però 
decidiamo anche di dedicare le nostre forze, tutte le nostre forze al lavoro aperto, in particolare verso gli studenti. But we also orientated uh, all of our forces towards an open independent work in particular amongst the school students. Pensavano averci eliminato e invece grazie a questo lavoro aperto nell'85 al primo movimento di massa degli studenti la nostra organizzazione incomincia a crescere rapidamente. The bureaucracies thought they got rid of us but uh, with this open youth work at the first mass movement of the students in 1985 our organization began to grow quite uh, Fast. Una decina di anni dopo iniziamo il lavoro nel partito della rifondazione comunista. About a decade later, about a decade later, we started a work inside the PRC, the Communist Refoundation Party. In primo luogo un lavoro controcorrente che ci ha impegnato per vent'anni. Which was also uh, against the stream and uh, we were engaged in it for about 20 years. Il momento più importante è stato sicuramente l'inizio di quel lavoro. Eh, quando Bertinotti e l'appoggio degli stalinisti conferivano alla direzione una grande autorità. And uh, the most critical point of that work was certainly the start, the, the first stage when the leadership under Bertinotti and the Stalinists still had a big authority. Ma aver mantenuto sempre un approccio eh, amichevole e i principi fermi davanti alle provocazioni degli stalinisti ci ha permesso di conquistare con tempo e pazienza un'autorevolezza. But uh, with a flexible approach and a firmness on principle, we, uh, and, and with time we were able to gain uh, an authority in that uh, milieu. E iniziare a reclutare i primi giovani e i primi lavoratori. And we started to recruit both young people and workers. Man mano che la direzione del PRC mostrava il proprio opportunismo, and uh, with time the PRC leadership showed uh, more and more its opportunism aumentava la nostra visibilità e la possibilità di costruire una base stabile and we we began to turn into a point of reference and we built quite a stable basis for the organization senza mai rinunciare però al lavoro aperto tra gli studenti e i lavoratori but we never renounced our open work uh, amongst the students and the workers Espulsi dal Partito Comunista, lavoro aperto e orientamento al Partito Comunista. Expelled from the Communist Party, open work and orientation towards that party. Lavoro dentro la rifondazione, ma lavoro aperto tra i giovani e i lavoratori. Inside the PRC, but still uh, conducting open work amongst the youth and the workers. Lavoro in rifondazione che ci permise anche di diventare un'organizzazione che copriva tutto il territorio nazionale. Through that work inside the PRC, we were also able to expand the organization on the national scale. Sono stati due interventi diversi, ma nello stesso tempo possibili grazie al confronto serrato con l'internazionale. And these different stages and uh, we, uh, different uh, kind of work we conducted were only possible through a permanent discussion with the international. L'esperienza dell'internazionale, l'elaborazione teorica dell'internazionale sono un patrimonio inestimabile. The experience and the theoretical elaboration of this international are a priceless uh, uh, treasure. Quando il nostro lavoro sindacale era solo agli inizi, contavamo pochissimi lavoratori e tanti studenti. When we were at the, in the early stages of our trade union work, we had a, quite a lot of students and very few workers in the organization. Parliamo dell'inizio degli anni 90. We are talking of the early 90s. Una situazione difficile, crollo dell'Unione Sovietica, eh, la prima guerra in Iraq e il pacifismo, il fallimento del pacifismo che ha demoralizzato il movimento studentesco. 
they were not easy uh, times. They were the, the, with the fall of the Soviet Union, the failure of the anti-war movement uh, facing the first Iraq war. E nel 1992 la burocrazia sindacale firma un accordo molto pesante per i lavoratori. And in 1992 the trade union bureaucracy signed a, a turning point, a very bad uh, agreement for all the working class in Italy. Si apre una stagione di contestazione di dirigenti sindacali dei sindacati tradizionali. And the new season opens with open contest, uh, uh, protest and uh, uh, questioning by the rank and file against the, the leaders of the traditional trade unions. Tantissimi operai vanno in piazza quando il sindacato convoca le mobilitazioni per contestare i dirigenti. When the trade union leaders uh, call some demonstration, thousands of workers uh, turn out in order to protest and to to heckle the, these leaders. La rabbia era tanta che molti lavoratori lanciano bulloni nelle manifestazioni, tanto è vero che è stata nominata stagione dei bulloni. In 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 in, in massive demonstration there are group of workers who are so enraged that uh, throw uh, uh, steel bolts against the trade union leaders. So it was later named the autumn of the steel bolts. Ovviamente le sette, i piccoli gruppi e i sindacati i piccoli sindacati, spesso anarco-sindacalisti, annunciano la fine dei sindacati tradizionali. And of course, all the sects, all the alternative, all those uh, small split-off trade unions proclaim the death of the trade unions, like they always do. Anche se il nostro lavoro era solo all'inizio, dedichiamo molto tempo a discutere della posizione dei marxisti nei sindacati. And uh, despite being just in the early stage, we dedicated a lot of time discussing the Marxist position in relation to trade union work. La storia dell'organizzazione di massa, il movimento operaio italiano internazionale, the, le tesi dell'internazionale comunista, i primi quattro congressi. The history of the work, working class movement in Italy and internationally, history of the trade unions, the resolutions and thesis of the first four congresses of the communist international regarding trade union work. Pubblichiamo regolarmente interviste ai lavoratori, organizziamo diffusione di giornali davanti alle fabbriche. Eh, in, in, eh, Iniziamo ad avere i primi delegati sindacali. We regularly go to factory gates for paper sales, regularly publish uh, interviews with workers and we began to have uh, the first uh, group of uh, shop stewards inside the organization. Era difficile spiegare la nostra posizione, cioè la battaglia nella CGL a un settore di attivisti frustrati. At that time it was not easy to explain our position to conduct a battle inside the main trade union to a section of uh, trade union activists who were very frustrated with the bureaucracy. Poi Berlusconi vince le elezioni, i sindacati vengono messi alla porta e sono costretti a convocare manifestazioni di massa, i sindacati tradizionali che dovevano sparire. But then when Berlusconi won his first elections in 1994 Those the, the same trade unions are uh, kicked out of, uh, from any negotiating table and are forced and, uh, to call mass demonstration. Those same unions who were uh, said they, 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 they were dying. Per noi fu un passaggio fondamentale aver accumulato le forze prima e aver così potuto iniziare in modo migliore il nostro lavoro sindacale. And to us it was a fundamental question to, to have already accumulated some forces in order to begin that uh, trade union work on, on a serious uh, ground. C'è sicuramente un esempio che forse calza più di tutti. We can give an example which maybe is the most relevant. Il movimento no global del 2001, un movimento yes. poderoso a livello internazionale. The so-called anti-globalization or anti-capitalist movement in 2001, which was a powerful movement on a world scale. 
che ha visto in Italia un processo di radicalizzazione importante tra i giovani. Which in Italy saw an important radicalization of the youth. Un movimento, ovviamente, dominato da ogni tipo di idea piccolo borghese, perché c'era una direzione piccolo borghese. The movement was led and dominated by all sorts of, uh, of uh, petty bourgeois trends and ideas. Una direzione opportunista, irresponsabile, eh, anarcho-sindacalista, piccolo borghese, tutti sono potuti immaginare il peggio del peggio. All the possible mistakes of petty bourgeois, anarcho-sindicalist, irresponsible, adventurist ideas were present. Gli stalinisti stavano alla finestra a guardare che il movimento morisse. The Stalinists stay uh, remain on the sidelines waiting for the movement to fail and to ebb. Le sette davano lezioni su cosa bisognava fare. The sects were giving letters on how to uh, what to do. I mandelisti ovviamente erano adattati alla direzione burocratica del movimento. The Mandalites, of course, were adapted to this bureaucratic and petty bourgeois leadership. Era un intervento complicato, dove potevamo anche rischiare di perdere qualche compagno. It was not easy to organize a, a work inside, and we also ran the, had the danger of losing comrades. Ma l'approfondimento teorico, la, il collegare alla lo, la lotta alla classe lavoratrice e una strategia audace ci permise di conquistare una parte di questi giovani. But uh, with the theoretical deep, uh, deepening of our ideas and uh, trying to link this uh, work to the working class, we were able to win a section of this youth. Io ho finito il tempo, ma volevo dire un'ultima cosa. My time is almost over, but I want to add uh, just one point. Senza l'internazionale non saremmo riusciti a lavorare nei momenti più difficili. Without the international it would have been impossible to work in the most difficult uh, uh, times. A sfruttare le occasioni quando si presentavano. And to take advantage of those opportunities we, ha- we had. E questo fa della TMI una vera internazionale, non una somma di organizzazioni o una federazione. And that is what makes the IMT a real international and not just a, a, an addition of different organizations or a federation. Un'unica organizzazione internazionale. In una One. parola, metodo e le idee di Marx, Engels, Lenin, Trotsky e quindi Ted Grant. In one, uh, a single organization uh, that is, uh, in one word, the ideas of Marx, Engels, Lenin, Trotsky and Ted Grant. Thank you. Grazie. Grazie, Paolo. Uh, Next speaker is Rob Sewell. Rob Sewell, wait a minute. Okay. Am I coming through loud and clear? Yes. Okay. First of all, uh, I'd like to thank Fred for his uh, very in-depth, very good contribution. And uh, thank him for uh, volunteering uh, me to speak on Militant for 15 minutes. Uh, Shows that someone's got a good sense of humor. I know where to start from. Well, you could start by saying that we were the smallest group on the left by far. And then in the the space of about 10, 15 years, we became the most successful Trotskyist organization since the creation of the left opposition. Unfortunately, that was thrown away by uh, the majority uh, leadership, who who, uh, the success went to their heads, shall we say. Uh, But if you were were a betting man, if you were a betting person, you surely wouldn't have... Carry on you surely wouldn't have bet on militant to become the biggest uh, force. That's for sure in 1964. But, but what it showed really was the, the, the fact that we had correct ideas and the correct perspective. We were at the right uh, place at the right time with the right ideas. Of course, in, in the Labour Party at this time, 1964, 65, 66, it wasn't a, a very good time, really. 
a Labour government was, was in power and it was carrying out uh, counter-reforms. There were two other uh, groups in the Labour Party at that time, the, the Heliites, the Socialist Labour League, and uh, the Cliff Group, the International Socialists. And um, the uh, Young Socialists, the youth section of the Labour Party, was, uh, was, was wrecked by the uh, Socialist Labour League. They left the party, and so did the the, uh, the Cliff Group as well. They left as well, the Labour Party. And by 1969, it was a very bad atmosphere. Even some uh, miners' uh, branches were threatening to um, disaffiliate from the Labour Party because of the policies of the government. And our our, our enemies uh, used to joke about us being the Labour Party, used to make the uh, the sexist comment, uh, who was in the Labour Party? Old women of both sexes, and young men selling militant. Uh, but it wasn't far from the truth, uh, really. You know, so. Five minutes gone. But uh, what we did uh, do was to concentrate on the youth. That was the key question for the building of the tendency. And we did patient work in the Labour Party Young Socialists, rebuilding it from scratch. Uh, work was, I mean, the number of branches we had in, at that time was one in London, one in Merseyside, and one in Swansea. And there was work, uh, pioneering work done then in, in Sussex, in Sussex University by, uh, by Allen. But, but it was using the banner of the, of the Labour Party Young Socialists that we really made headway in the 1970s. But there'd been a big change in the objective situation. There's a, a radicalisation, not only in Britain, but uh, in, in Europe as well, you know, follow, you know in, in Spain, in Portugal, in Greece and so on. And the, and the left were building in the Labour Party again under Tony Benn. They were rising. A militant uh, rose with the general left uh, uh, in, in the Labour Party and the trade unions in Britain. By the mid-1970s, we were holding young socialist conferences of a thousand or more people. By 1976, we had uh, got up to a thousand comrades. By 1980, we had 2,000 comrades. So we, we, this is how we, we, we built, mainly from the youth, but we also built up in the Labour Party. We had quite big delegations at Labour Party conference, and we ba- began to build in the trade unions as well. The witch hunt against militant began in 1976. That's when it began. But it, it didn't uh, um, dissuade us. On the contrary, we, we turned, it, turned, it, turned it against them. And by uh, the early 1980s, uh, we were very well established in the Labour Party, developing in the unions. And as a result, the, the, the bourgeoisie in Britain were terrified. They were worried that we were putting backbone in the left. And they waged, they waged a huge uh, witch hunt to, to get us out of the Labour Party, to get us expelled. It was a big, camp, big campaign in the newspapers every day, on the television, in the radio, attacking militant, militant, get them out. They were infiltrators. And we took advantage of this by holding uh, meetings all around the country. And they were, they were drawing 1,000 people, 1,500 people who attended uh, meetings in big cities all around the country to hear what militants stood for. In Liverpool, we established a very strong base because of years of work in the Labour Party. And we won a number of, won a number of councillors in Liverpool and, in effect, began to uh, decide the policy give, through the broad left of the Labour Party in Liverpool. Ten minutes. In effect, we, we led Liverpool City Council in confrontation with the Tory government. At the same time, we won uh, uh, parliamentary positions um, Terry Fields in uh, Liverpool, Ball Green, and Dave Nellist in Coventry Southeast. Uh, Pat Waugh was to win his seat. Was going to win his seat in 1987. So we're, we'd have three MPs in Parliament by then. It was a time also of, of the miners' strike in 1984, 1985, where we intervened uh, all over the uh, coal fields. We won 500 uh, miners to the organisation, and then in 1988, uh, 1989. 
we waged this big battle over the poll tax in which we mobilized something in the order of between 14 and 18 million people. By 1988, you had 8,000 uh, comrades. We, we became a household name. Everybody knew us. You know, on the television and in the newspapers, everywhere. Everybody knew Militant. But the whole basis of the organization was, was Ted's leadership and his, his theoretical guidance of the organization. But they were those in the, in the leadership, particularly around uh, Peter Taff, who, who had big ideas, you know, grand ideas. Of course, it was getting difficult in the Labour Party. We had the, the witch hunt against us and, and Neil Kinnock uh, attacking us at the Labour Party conference and all that. And expulsions were taking place. But the majority leadership in the world started to draw ultra-left uh, ideas. They, they lost a sense of proportion. That was the main thing. And this was accompanied, really, by um, a watering down of the political and theoretical level of the membership, to be honest about it. 15 minutes. Theory was just uh, a, a, a little extra now, you know. It wasn't central to the organization as, as it had been. Now it was activism. Activism and activism became the, the dominant theme. And uh, in 1991, uh, we had uh, the, the, the Walton by-election in Liverpool. And uh, the majority leadership wanted to stand a candidate against the Labour Party, and uh, we argued against that. Uh, and, and as a result, the, the real Labour vote, uh, candidate got 2,600 votes. And it was big boasting. This is a victory for socialism, 2,600 votes for socialism. And, and some people were bragging, oh, we'll do well. The Labour Party itself will wither on the vine, they said. And we said at the time that uh, you go down this road, there's ultra-left road, and it'll be a detour over a cliff. And in the so-called debate that was t- t- took place, the most bureaucratic and, and uh, de- well, de- degenerate methods were used against the opposition to crush us. They couldn't answer our ideas. They just wanted to crush us and expel us, which they did in the end. And it just reflected a, a, a degeneration that had taken place in the leadership of the organization. And, all, and uh, the, the MPs were sacrificed because of Walton, of course. When we were expelled and they went on an independent party, they said, oh, they were bragging. They would get, you know, tens of thousands would, would, would join them and so on. And it turned out to be a complete damp squib. And the possibility is that they just threw it away completely in an ultra-left fashion. So they destroyed the uh, militant. We had to start again from scratch, but based on, real, on the real genuine traditions of the tendency. And the success is in front of us today. So my, my time is now, I think, uh, coming to an end. So. Um, I've tried my best, and it's uh, an impossible task. But as they say, read the book and uh, watch the film. Thank you. Thank you very much, Fred. Before uh, Fred sum up, Camarade uh, Alan Woods. Um, <clears throat> you know, I joined this organization uh, in 1960. I was still at school. I was 16 years of age. I'm now a little bit older than that. But I can tell you something. I have never for one moment regretted that decision. And I have never left this organization. Many people have, but I have never left the same organization. I joined in 1960. And I can assure you, as one who knows, that the international Marxist tendency today is the only true inheritor of the genuine principles of the organization, the tendency established by Comrade Ted Grant so long ago. You know, one thing puzzles me about the sects. When you, when you read their newspapers, you listen to them speaking and so on. All of them seem to imagine that history starts with them. <laughs> well, I'll tell you something, Comrade, history, we know history 
does not start with us. We're not impressed with the mad chase after so-called new ideas, which are not new at all if you look at the, if you analyze them. Oh no, we stand for the old ideas. The, yes, the old ideas of the Communist Manifesto of the Bolshevik Party of Lenin and Trotsky. That's quite good enough for us, and those ideas still retain their all their their vigor and their relevance. Now there were three things which which attracted me to this organization. I remember. Although, as Rob correctly said, we were the smallest of all the left, minuscule. I think there were not more than thirty members in the entire in, in the whole of Britain. That's to say, in the whole of the world. We had no money, no centre, no headquarters, no full-timers. Ted Grant was working as a telephone operator in the post office. Slow, slow down, please. Slow down. Okay. And yet there were three things that attracted me towards this organ. Firstly, a serious attitude towards theory. Secondly, a clear orientation towards the organisations of the working class, the Labour Party and the, the trade unions. And there was something else. It was, I, I could see that it was a very clean and democratic and honest organisation. That was a fact. Now, it was on the basis of these things that we were able to build up into a serious force in Britain, as Rob pointed out. But at a certain point, why didn't you translate it? Well, the thing is that I can't hear the time. That I, can't judge the, I can't judge the time. You know, so ask him to change. Uh, and it was, on these, it was on this basis that we were able to build up. And yet every single one of those principles was destroyed by the criminal activities of, of a faction, of an ultra-left faction led by Peter Taff and his, uh, and his clique. This is what destroyed the militant, destroyed the most successful Trotskyist organization in the history of Britain, perhaps one of the most successful organizations in the world. And I'll tell you this, comrades, that was a crime which we can never forgive, never, ever forgive. Now, I don't intend to deal with any detail Rob mentioned. Five minutes gone. The bureaucratic and, and anti-democratic methods used by, against the minority in the split. I won't deal with the details. I'll just say this. I have seen all kinds of vicious, brutal, internal Stalinist. I've seen all kinds of monster behavior. But I've never in my life, never in my life, either before or since seen such vicious and criminal Stalinist gangsterism as what was used by the, the tabloids. I say that and I repeat it and I will continue to repeat it. And whoever doesn't like it, well, that's their problem. Uh, the consequences of this betrayal, because that's what it was, colossal betrayal, were quite clear. It was the destruction of the militant, as I say. And we had to start then from virtually from nothing. The Taft gang took everything. They had the headquarters, big headquarters. Big, they had to sell it subsequently because of the lack of funds, of course. A fool and his money are, off, are soon parted, as we say in the British proverb. But they had a big centre. They had the printing press. They had the newspaper, of course. They had the full-timers. They had the money. They had everything. What did we have? Well, Alan, 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 please. Well, listen, the problem is this. I, I, I must have Anna to translate because I can't hear the translation. Yes, I know. Please transfer to, to, to Anna, please. Yeah, this, right. this is ridiculous. C'est bon, Anna. Anna, you, you are in the line. Okay. Can you hear now? Okay. Well, let's continue. Si, si, si. Let's continue. <laughs> if I can hear the translation, then I, can, I, I know what to, when, when to stop. Uh, we were left with what? I'll, I'll tell you what we were left with. We had one small typewriter, and even that didn't work very well. <laughs> that was the sum total of the apparatus of the IMT. We sat down and discussed, Ted and myself, we sat down and discussed, what is our priorities at this moment? It was a very difficult moment, by the way. 
was a sharp turn to the right uh, in Britain and internationally. Above all, there was the collapse of the Soviet Union, which had a very depressing, demoralizing effect on large elements of the left. And we had the most massive ideological counter-offensive against Marxism launched by the, by the bourgeoisie. Now, comments, what is the, the role of a Marxist under, in a, in a historical conjuncture like this? Surely it is to defend the fundamental principles of Marxism against this ideological onslaught of the bourgeoisie. That was what we, that, that's what we concluded. And therefore we set, uh, set about producing, uh, the first book was, it was going to be a series of books, to defend the fundamental principles of Marxism, starting with philosophy, of course. That was always the solid basis of Marxism. It's still the basis today. What was the reaction of uh, Mr. Taff and his pals when they discovered the, the publication of Reason in Revolt? Oh, they had a good laugh. They really laughed their heads off. You know? they, they thought it was hilarious. They were joking. They were joking. They said, look, Ted and Alan have abandoned politics in order to, uh, to write about philosophy. Now, that statement in and of itself is quite sufficient to define these gentlemen, these ladies and gentlemen, I should say. Mustn't forget the ladies. To define them as an anti, a profoundly anti-Marxist tendency, which has dropped all pretense of, of defending the, the basic ideas of Marxism. And it's gone. In favour of what? In favour of a mindless so-called activism, mindless agitation. With what result? I think you know the result. For those of you that take an interest in these people, which I do not, <laughs> I do not consider them even even a footnote to history. But one thing is clear: they paid the price for their betrayals. Uh, they they really were a, a weird combination of extreme opportunism on the one hand and extreme adventurism on the other hand. But I've never seen a tendency like that. <laughs> And adventurism, yes, they were, if you like, the nearest com- comparison, they were like the the economist trend, the, the, the revisionist economist trend, which Lenin slammed, Lenin, Lenin slapped it in, in what is to be done, another writer. Well, they had a good laugh then, uh, but they're not laughing now, I can tell you. They're mm, finished, I won't say any more on that, on that subject. Now, just compare that Philistine attitude, Philistine anti-Marxist attitude towards theory. Just compare that to Lenin writing materialism and empirical criticism in 1908, when the forces of counter-revolution were raging in, in Tsarist Russia. Oh, and what was Lenin doing reading Hegel, writing about Hegel in, in Zurich during the First World War? Could he not find anything better do, to do with this time? I think Lenin knew what he was doing. He knew that by studying theory, he was preparing the ground for such masterpieces as state and revolution and preparing the, the practical grounds for the Russian revolution. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Now, you, you, might, you might imagine that with the Ted and I must have been very upset. Right? <laughs> You'd be profoundly, <laughs> profoundly mistaken. Ted, Anna, Rob Sewell and myself were not a bit bothered by that this bit. Not at all. Not in the slightest degree. It was absolutely clear to us by this time that we had to separate from this degenerate trend. Had to separate. It was a matter of life and death. They did us a favor by expelling us. That's all. That's okay. And reason and revolt, you know, it had a colossal effect. It was, it was one of the fundamental ways in which we began to build the organization. We had the most enthusiastic comments, not just from students, but from workers. Oh, yes, many workers and many trade unionists. You see, there's one thing. I, I'm from a working, a poor working class family in South Wales myself. My grandfather was, was a communist. There were always books in our house. Always. I've still got them now. Anti During. The origin of the species and so on. And if there's, some, if there's something I cannot stand, something that really makes me mad, 
It's the it's it's the rot the prejudice of petty bourgeois elements. Some petty bourgeois students, not our students, of course, but some some who dare to call themselves Marxists. I don't know why. Who have a, who have a contempt for the working class and they think the workers are not interested in theory. Yes, yeah, that's ta- that's what Taft thought, and all the miserable gang that was with. That's what they they all thought that. Don't bother the workers with theory. Reason and revolt proved what we knew all the time. At least the advanced workers, the thinking workers, the people that we're aiming for, have a thirst for theory. As a matter of fact, they have a more serious attitude towards theory than many so-called intellectuals, if the truth were to be told. Fifteen minutes. But reason and revolt also was very successful with with students, with intellectuals, also with university professors. It it had a big effect. For example, I remember we received an email from... uh, University of Rio de Janeiro. We didn't have any comrades in Mexico, in Brazil at that time. Asking, could they use the section on human origins in reason and revolt as the basis for a postgraduate course in the University of in the biological department? Later, we received a similar request from the Department of Physics in the UNAM, the University of Mexico, National University. Oh yes, and it was through reason and revolt. You may not know this. It was through reason and revolt. That I established personal contact with you, with the late, late Hugo Chavez, who was deeply impressed with the book. Wow. <laughs> Actually, the, his brother was telling me, Adam Chavez was, was another friend of mine. Adam Chavez was telling me. He was a physicist, also an ex guerrilla, but he was a physicist. And he walked into Chavez's, he walked into Chavez's bedroom and he saw this book, Reason and Devote on the Side of the Bed. He said, watch this, a book about science. Well, I'll take this. It's no good to you. And Chavez told you, you bugger off, clear off. It's my book. Go and get your own copy. But it was from there that Chavez and I developed a relationship. And by the way, you could Chavez, you could say a lot about it. You can make criticisms all that you like. But I used to know the man, and I'm firmly convinced that that Hugo Chavez, despite all his faults, was a sincere and honest revolutionary who wanted to carry out the socialist revolution in Venezuela. He wanted to carry it out. And he looked upon our tendency, myself also, but the the tendency, the IMT, he knew all about the IMT, with enormous respect. We had enormous authority with Hugo Chavez. I know know that for a fact. Now I can't develop that point of Venezuela. It's a separate discussion. But but what, what it does show is the importance of ideas. And we have to make it clear. Make it clear to everybody. There's no possible confusion about this when they ask, what is the IMT? I answer. The IMT is a hardline, orthodox, Marxist, Leninist, Trotskyist organization. As a matter of fact, we are the only tendency in the world that consistently has consistently fought and continues to fight for the genuine traditions and ideas of Bolshevism, Leninism, both in its both in its ideology and theory. And also in its organizational methods and tactics. And therefore, it is necessary. But of course, we must understand the Revolutionary Party does not exist in a vacuum. We live in this rotten capitalist society and we are under the constant pressure of alien class ideas. And we must be aware of that fact. And therefore, it is necessary to wage a constant and relentless struggle against the pernicious influence or bourgeois and petty bourgeois ideas, which in, which inevitably end up to expressing themselves either as opportunism 
or ultra-left sectarianism. Do we have internal crises and, uh, and battles and splits? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. And I have no doubt that when our enemies look at the history of the IMT, they will doubtless choose to present it as a history of constant internal battles, crises, splits, and so on. No doubt they find this spectacle rather amusing. On the other hand, there are some comrades that I know that have found this a bit depressing at times. You know, they're both wrong. They're both wrong. Trotsky liked to quote the famous phrase by Spinoza, the great philosopher, neither weep nor laugh, but understand, understand. You see, oh, by the way, there's one thing, let's, let's nail this once and for all. Let's nail this nonsense once and for all. You always get this after every crisis, every split. Some comments, some comments are looking busily for some recipe, some magic solution to avoid crises and splits. Let's have a look at the statutes, see if we can change the rules to, to, to legislate against splits and crises. You, you, you know, Moses tried that trick a long time ago with his Ten, ten Commandments, which were intended to prohibit sin by law. By decree, by statutes. I'm afraid that after several thousand years, his experiment didn't have a very happy ending. And in attempts to find a cookbook that will find the, the magic solution are, are also condemned to the same result. My dear friends, let me tell you, let me tell you, there is no such cookbook in existence. You won't find it. You're wasting your time. If it did exist, by the way, Marx and Engels didn't know it because they had plenty of crises and splits with the Bakuninists and so on. Trotsky didn't know it. He had the same problem. And Lenin, well, the amount of, the amount of splits the Bolshevik party had was nobody's business. You know? So please don't, don't, please don't waste your time, my friends. I think Rob said it correctly. Insofar as there's some kind of, or might have been Fred, insofar as there's some kind of guarantee against degeneration. 25 minutes. It is only the development of raising the political and theoretical level of the cadres. Above all, the stability of the party depends on the, on the moral and political authority of the leadership. If you have a morally and intellectually equipped leadership with authority in the eyes of the membership, those, lead, those, those leaders will never have to result to, to expulsions and splits and organizational maneuvers. Why should they? They can answer the questions, answer the differences. And by the way, crises and splits are an inherent part of, of not just of politics, but of life itself. They're inevitable. Birth is, a, birth is a crisis, a very painful crisis. Adolescence is a crisis. You've got the crisis of middle age and, and so on. People pass through these crises. Weak individuals collapse. They're dragged under by the crisis. But a strong man or woman overcomes the crisis and emerges strengthened. And I can state without fear of contradiction. Everybody knows this. Everyone can see it. The IMT has emerged colossally strengthened by the experience of the last 10 or 20 years, including the internal battles and so on. It's strengthened us. Now, I should say, of course, that uh, we are a democratic organization. There's plenty of debates take place. And so that's, that's as it should be. That's as it should be. But, but you see, uh, there is another side of the question. The IMT is not a debating society, my friends. You know, it's, it's a militant revolutionary organization. And there's a problem, isn't there, with the, particularly with students and uh, academic people, academics. How I despise academics. <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. Especially so-called academic Marxists. How I despise that, those creatures. Yes. Let me tell you something, my friends. Look, you can be an academic, 
Or you can be a Marxist. You can't be both. That's a contradiction in terms. I'm very sorry. It's a contradiction in terms. And these academics, they spend all their lives arguing and debating about this and that trivial question. You know. Of course, they have all the time in the world because they don't do anything else. Just talk and talk and talk endlessly. Workers are not like that. And neither are the Marxists. For us, discussion and debate are functional things. You debate for a reasonable space of time. You listen to all points of view. But at the end, my friends, you've got to decide. You must decide. Any worker understands that. Maybe some students or petty boozer types don't understand. Workers understand. Before a strike, there's a democratic debate always. Some workers are in favor of the strike. Some others speak against the strike. But at the end of the day, they proceed to a vote. And the majority decides and the minority accepts. They do accept. They do accept willingly. And that's the same with us. The IMT is a revolutionary army. And therefore, we must have a disciplined army, of course. The difference with a, with a professional bourgeois army is that their discipline is imposed as something external, something from outside. In our army, which is a volunteer army of revolutionaries, our discipline comes from inside, from, from, an, from, a, from a firm conviction in the justice of the cause which we are fighting for and the correctness of our methods. You know, I, I will draw my remarks to a close, but comrades who know me like that I quote, like me to quote from the Bible. You know what the Bible says? Like unto the man who builded his house upon the sand. And the wind came and the rain and it blew upon that house and the house fell. We don't want to be like that, do we? We want to be like the man who built his house upon the rock and the wind came and the rain and it fell upon that house and the house fell not. Of course, uh, what Jesus Christ was referring to was the, the rock of religious faith. I hasten to reassure you that I'm speaking as a dedicated and firm atheist and materialist. We have no need for religious faith, Congress, none, none whatsoever. But we do have faith. We must have faith. Faith in the working class is the only force that can change society. Faith in the ideas of Marxism, which are the only ideas which can carry the working class to victory. And why not? Faith in ourselves. Because, you know, comrades, if we don't do the work, nobody else is going to do it for us. So I conclude by the, this marvelous school. This is very uh, inspirational to me. I add the final phrase. Yes, comrades, faith in the international Marxist tendency and in its future victory in the struggle for the world socialist revolution. Thank you very much, Alan. Um, now it's Fred to the conclusion. How much time have I got? Okay. Can't hear you, Hubert. Can you get rid of this text? Thank okay. you. Thank you, Jordi. Okay. Well, <clears throat> I have a lot more to say that you can say in 20 minutes, but I will try and keep it brief. If you look at the points that I referred to in the beginning, but if you go even further back to the first, the second, and the third internationals, you will find that there were objective reasons why certain things happened to those organizations. The second international, there was a, a, a period of uh, upswing which led to the adaptation to capitalist society on the part of that organization. The third international degenerated on the basis of the isolation of the Russian Revolution. The fourth international, I explained the impact of the post-war boom. Those are objective factors, but there's also subjective elements involved. I'll touch on that in a minute. Um, but the, um, there was always a minority that did not succumb to those pressures. Lenin was in the Second International. Trotsky was in the Second International. 
the followers of the left opposition in the 30s did not succumb to the degeneration of the, uh, of the Soviet Union. Whereas Mandel, Cannon, and all the others, they did feel the impact of the post-war boom and they zigzagged from one mistake to another. You see how Ted maintained a balanced position and, and preserved the ideas. There were objective elements involved in the militant as well. The 1980s, in one country after another, saw some important defeats of the working class. The miners' strike in Britain was a defeat, the defeat of the fiat workers in Italy in 1980. There was a bourgeois offensive against the working class in the 1980s after the uh, struggles of the 70s. The militant and the old international, the CBI, rose on the back of the big movement of the 70s. But then important events had an impact on the organization. And again, it was the inability of the majority of the leadership to come to terms with the new situation that led to the collapse of that organization. I remember there was a refusal to recognize that the situation had changed. The refusal went as far as refusing even to recognize that the organization was becoming weaker. You know, in 1991, I, I looked in, in the details of the internal bulletins of the militant. And I was very surprised at what I found. A large number of inactive members, not going to meetings, not paying subs, not selling the paper. But what shocked me even more is when I went to uh, Britain to participate in the conference of the militant. I was, I was in Italy at the time. I was shocked by the level. And this was a consequence of methods which had um, been adopted at the top of the organization. A looking and basically it was a seeking for shortcuts. The, the, the theoretical level of the organization had gone down as a consequence. Now that is fatal for a revolutionary organization. When the objective dif- situation is, becomes more difficult, you need to pay particular attention to raising the theoretical understanding of the membership. Other, otherwise, the most powerful organization can be destroyed. Part of that seeking shortcuts was connected to prestige politics. Comrades, prestige politics is a poison which undermines the revolutionary movement. Prestige politics, particularly of the leadership, can destroy the organization. Because what does it mean? If you've made a mistake, you are not prepared to correct it because it means admitting that you, the leadership, made that mistake. You go down that road and you end up destroying the organization because unless you are capable of reappraising the situation when it's necessary and honestly admitting when things have changed and also when you've made mistakes, you will be destroyed. And part of this is, um, this was particularly, I saw it in the militant in the latter period, was the promotion of certain types. I would call them the sort of the street going action men and women. That is. And, um, Anybody that's interesting, interested in, genuinely interested in theory is put to one side. When the objective situation becomes difficult, those people are incapable of reorientating. But they were promoted within the militant towards the end. I had personal experience of it. The arrogant type, that, uh, the bullying type, I would, I would actually say. You know, thinks, they think they're the boys. We've, we're, we've made it. We're, the big, we're this big organization. Who can tell us? There's one thing I've learned from that experience. Do not promote to positions of responsibility any comrade that, sh- that reveals a tendency to personal ambition. 
Do not put anybody in a position of advising others on how to build who have not shown the ability to build themselves. When we get back to having physical meetings, physically together, we'll have a few drinks and I can explain some of the experiences I had because of that. Now, the, Alan said it, the only kind of authority that a leadership of a revolutionary Marxist organization can have is a moral and a political authority. That's the way you behave, the way you lead, and your ability to develop the ideas and provide perspectives. That's why Ted Grant had the authority. I quoted what he wrote in the 40s and, and, and earlier, and that's what gave him authority in the long run. I remember when they accused Alan and Ted of being mere theoreticians, mere theoreticians, forgetting what Lenin said, without revolutionary theory, there is no revolutionary action. Look at the attention Lenin gave to theory, his writings on imperialism, the national question, the state, philosophy, imperial criticism, classical work of Marxism. We base ourselves on that approach. And we base ourselves on a healthy, democratic, internal regime. That's the only way of making sure we get the correct ideas, comrades. 15, 15 minutes. And we also have a flexible approach to the way we work in the labor movement. When you have an unhealthy regime and prestige politics, it usually expresses itself in a crude interpretation of Marxism with no real theoretical understanding. And then you become a, like a ship without a compass. Now, we need to build a healthy Marxist organization, but we also be, must be ever vigilant against the tendencies that we've seen develop in the past. Marx suffered this problem. I haven't got time here, but there's a, there's a letter uh, that is, it's to Friedrich Bolt in New York in 1871. And he explains the problems they had in the first international. Now, the IMT, when it decided to launch a new, a new, but at the same time an old organization, we decided that we would base ourselves first and foremost on the defense of Marxist theory, Alan has explained that, and turn to the fresh layers of the youth. It's amazing. There's people in the movement who see the IMT. They can't understand how can we have so much youth. These, they just discuss theory. That's the reason why we're growing. We started with smaller forces back in 91, 92. After you have a split, you always have problems. Why did it happen? What did we do wrong? And we had our problems. But I tell you, we have fully recovered now. Look, in these countries that I'm going to list now, we had nothing. Canada, United States, Venezuela, Brazil, Nigeria, South Africa, Russia, Central America, Eastern Europe, apart from Pakistan, nothing else in Asia. You'll get a much more thorough report later, uh, later on. But we have built many, many, many sections since then. Holland, Norway, Switzerland. How can this be possible? It's because we've maintained a firm defense of the basic ideas of Marxism. And it's with ideas that you build an organization. And the, what's the essence of the IMT? Preserve the genuine ideas of Marxism, a revolutionary position, at the same time, a non-sectarian position. We take these ideas to the youth and the working class, and we build a healthy, democratic, revolutionary Marxist international. We must constantly pay attention to education. We mustn't forget the experiences that we've been through. 
because mistakes can be repeated. And the reason why we study this kind of experience is also to learn the lessons and not repeat or at least attempt not to repeat those mistakes. There are many left groups out there. And unfortunately, with their sectarian antics and their opportunist adaptation, they've done it. They've done a disservice to the tradition of Leon Trotsky. The, the, the left opposition in the 1930s had a clean banner. So we're not just struggling against the Stalinists and the reformists who dominate the labor movement. We're struggling to reestablish that clean banner of the international left opposition. Thank you, Tobias. That's what the IMT is. We bet, we, we've given you an outline of what we stand for and where we come from. We've been working hard against the stream for, for periods. The stream has now changed in our favor. This school is the proof of the correctness of our method and ideas. We also have added to the heritage. The book by Alan and Ted on Marxism and science, our analysis of the national question of the European Union, China, imperialism, the books that we've produced on Germany, on Russia, on Spain, and others. And we've established Marxist.com, the In Defense of Marxism website, as a point of reference for revolutionary workers and youth around the world who are looking for answers. We have built the strong foundations upon which the, uh, uh, the building will stand. Now the world is in crisis, an unprecedented crisis. The world is sinking into barbarism, but there is a class that can stop that. The working class, it requires leadership. The crisis of humanity now is the crisis of the leadership of the working class. We, we must solve that crisis. We must put an end to it by building a powerful Marxist tendency embedded in the labor movement of all countries. That's what the IMT is about. And I would invite all of those listening who haven't done so, who haven't, done yet, uh, haven't joined yet to join. Join us and help us to build the IMT. We have a big job to do after this school. The work continues beyond the four days. That's my, it's late. I'm sure you're tired. Thank you very much, Fred. Uh, thank you, everybody, to have followed the school today. I invite you tomorrow for the last day of the school at 1 p.m. British Summer Time for three sessions running in parallel, Marxism and Religion, Marxism versus queer theory, Marxism versus pacifism, and then the closing online rally at 5.30 p.m. on building on building the Revolutionary Party. Thank you very much.